friends, you are now listening to the Anagram Journey Podcast with your Anagram Godmother, the woman who brought you the road back to you and the path between us, Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and today's guest is the incredible anti-trafficking ally, Anagram One, Abigail Ernice. Abby shares some of her story and her journey, and she and Suzanne talk about what it's like to not look like your family from two very different perspectives. How do Rizzo and Hudson's childhood messages play in adoptees? And we begin a conversation on a subject that she is very passionate about, human trafficking. Plug time. No more teasers. August 5th through the 7th, an Anagram workshop in Dallas, Breaking the Cycle, with the Reverend Suzanne and the Russ Hudson. They're going to teach us how to break the pattern of our false self, when and where the cycle can be broken, and they're going to give us tools to help us better identify with our true self. They're also going to use Enneagram knowledge to help us grow a better understanding of our unconscious emotional programs for happiness and begin identifying with the virtues we possess instead of allowing our passions to be in control. The event is going to be held at First United Methodist Church in Dallas, like I said, August 5th through 7th, and there are limited seats available as we continue to maintain some safe social practices. If you can't make it to Dallas to be in the building with us, great news, the event will be streamed live online with the help of DFW Livestream. LTM has a special early bird pricing for both the in-person and the livestream option through June 15th. And all attendees, both in the house and online, will have access to the replay for two months. Visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com for more info and to register. And if you're thinking about coming to Dallas for it, don't wait too long because the tickets are already going really fast. Breaking the Cycle, August 5th through 7th. We'll see you there. And now, Suzanne and Abigail. Abigail. I met you recently at an event here, and I loved having you in the room. And when I have that experience, it's often because I'm with somebody who's teachable. And as you know, not everybody is. Mm -hmm. And Joel had told me a little bit about you. And so I learned on my own that you're teachable, and I want to learn from you. So we're going to get to know one another a little better today and I'm going to begin to learn from you and then we're going to we've already agreed to continue the conversation later on so that I can learn more. I have discovered at 70 that I think I know about things that I don't know nearly enough about and that I haven't modernized. Mm. So one of the things that I shared with you when we met was that I was involved in the civil rights movement when I was in college, and that I thought we accomplished so much more than we did, and that's what I mean by modernizing our learning, Mm. because I'm doing that now, or trying to. So let's start back at the beginning now that I've told everybody how much I like you and how much I'm anxious to know you better. I love that you heard about the Enneagram at a prayer meeting. So let's start there. Yes. Well, I I have to say that I'm so, so honored to be here with you and have loved learning from you, not in person and just 
in my earbuds while I'm across the globe and now in person. It's been such a gift to my ability to have grace for myself and to to journey well, um, mind, body, and soul. And so it's it's a high honor to be here with you. And yeah, I did. I heard about the enemy the Enneagram in a prayer meeting. And it's so funny because I was in the room with um a one and a nine and we were talking about a conflict I was having in my life and how much difficulty I was having because of the the principle of the, of the conflict. <laughs> <laughs> And um, they're like, you know, I think you should maybe, you know, look into this Enneagram thing and just see what you think about it. And so I was like, okay, yeah, learning tools. I love these things. And so I went and uh, learned about it and really was just baffled that not everyone has a voice in their head Yeah. Um, really quickly and realized like this is really helping me see myself um, in a new way and really feel actually hopeful um, that I can grow and and learn so yeah we have a lot in common we're both adopted yes and i when i first started learning the enneagram a long time ago i can remember wondering what it would be like for me Mm. dealing with my adoption if i was a one and had a voice helping me uh dislike myself and disapprove of myself and all of the things that go with that. So after a little bit of work, after the prayer meeting, you, in fact, owned your oneness. Yeah. Tell everybody about uh, where you started your journey and where you've come thus far. How old are you? I am 26. So I started my journey, I guess it would have been three or four years ago. And oh, no, no, no. I mean the journey. Oh, the whole the thing. Whole the whole journey. thing. Okay, yeah. let me go way back. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. No, way yeah. back is when you're 70. <laughs> it's not far when you're 26, but go ahead. Fair, very fair. So, yeah, I was adopted when I was a baby from East Africa um, by my parents who are um, ethnically white and Dutch and French, and I am um, obviously black. And so that experience, well, not obviously, you guys can't see me, but um, so my experience was growing up as a transracial adoptee, both in Africa, because they have spent the better part of the last 31 years on the mission field. Mm-hmm. And so part of my experience has been growing up in East Africa, and then the other part has been, been growing up in the US. And so it's been a very interesting journey. And one of the sort of core unhelpful beliefs I've carried, I think, for a long time, um, which is that people don't discard perfect things. And so that if there was a way to achieve perfection, that there would then be a way to be permanently loved. And I think that's a lot of the journey that I walked throughout my experience in my childhood and my adolescence. And really what was holding me back and what I was continuing to encounter in my relationships and in the principle of the matter that kind of um, brought me to that time when really learning that I was a one and that this was not actually a a helpful belief. You know, I thought it was a helpful thing for a long time, but turned out to be really unhelpful and something that kept me really tethered to perfection in a way that was robbing me of joy in my relationships and enjoyment of life really in a lot of ways. Um, and so you have two older brothers, two older sisters and an older brother. I have three older brothers and an older sister. Yeah. I almost got it. It's okay. (laughs) And are any of them adopted? 
No, I'm the only one. Yeah. That's, that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Like I, so, so then it was transracial in West Africa and transracial here. So there's never a non transracial moment, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's always that intersection. There's always the only one sort of feeling because I also grew up in missional communities that were predominantly white. Um, And so really the only time I had any experiences where my different differences were the commonality was when I was in international school in East Africa and I was having that experience in a diverse with diversity in my class and my peers. But it wasn't really in the adults or the authority figures in my life for the most part. So that just kind of speaks to a little bit of right the time frame that I was adopted in that, you know, in the 90s, we were not having conversations with people about the importance of genetic mirroring or the importance of surrounding adoptees with communities that were looking like them and how important that is to someone's developmental stage. You know, we weren't, we weren't reading the, you know, the body keeps score. We weren't really talking about and having open conversations about trauma. So I think there were a lot of undertones um, that I didn't really have the language for, for a really long time. And were definitely things that I think the voice in my head was naming that I was like, that feels true, but it's, it's with so much heavy critique that it's not really helping me grow. And so I think naming and knowing and holding my oneness helped me then kind of be like, okay, how do I grow through this and not, and not just perpetuate this voice that's constantly telling me that I'm, I'm not going to be enough and that ultimately I'm not going to be loved at the end of the day, unless I'm perfect. So just so you know, um, I am not a transracial adoption and I am not a one. And I grew up with exactly the same feeling Mm. that as a two, I grew up believing that number one, there must be something wrong with me or I wouldn't have been available to be adopted. Mm. And then beyond that, that if I get it wrong, then what happens? And I don't think I thought, a bad thing is going to happen, but I didn't think a good thing was going to happen either. Right. There's that Mm. place. So one of the things I've been saying for a while is there are some things that you're never not Mm. and not very many. There are not very many things that you're never not, but adoption is one of them. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that is sort of like this weird, unnameable thing in adoption where it's something you will always carry with you. Um, it's something that you hold. And I've seen that a lot with the tension that is the, you know, race relations in America that continues to be a thing in the adoptee community. Whereas the, whereas the, where there's this, like you're separated from, you know, the people who are really your, the ethnic majority in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there is this sort of grief and loneliness that you're carrying in a twofold way. So I think there's that commonality of all adoptees have this moment of I'm always going to be adopted. And then I think when you add in that transracial part, it is this other layer of, and I'm always not going to know what it's like to be part of a family that looks like me, which is this very strange intersectional identity moment that is, is takes a lot of growth and a lot of, reclaiming your ethnicity and a lot of work to, I think, come to a place where you're okay with that. Gosh, that's a lot. 
I'm so thrilled that we met you, by the way. I'm just sitting here. I haven't said a word yet. I'm just. Yeah, me too. This is so fun for me. I'm like, yay. Hey, we're having, we're we're doing this. Yes. So I'm um, a little worried about what I'm about to say. That's okay. You can say whatever. So if it's, uh, if it's not a good thing to say, then I want you to tell me. Okay. I was thinking while you were talking about not looking like the people that are your family, mm-hmm. that I might say, I also struggled with the fact that I didn't look like people in my family. Mm-hmm. But it felt like mine is less obvious, and so I shouldn't say it. It felt disrespectful. Mm-hmm. It felt potentially disrespectful mm. for me to, to connect to you and say, oh, I get that mm. in, in a way because I didn't look like anybody in my family either. Like mm. Joel looks somewhat like me. I, my oldest daughter looks a lot like me. Mm. My children, I look more like my children than I, because I didn't look like my parents. Yeah. So is that disrespectful when we're talking about transracial adoption? Is that like, it is what one would think is you, you need to just buck up. You have the same skin color. You. Mm, Yeah. I hear that. I am a big believer, right? Like just like any other thing, not all black people, white people, any, any experience, not everyone's a monolith. So there's always a possibility that someone else has another take on that. But when I hear, when I hear you say that is this sort of, um, both and where it's like, that is your experience and mine is a little different. Yeah. And so it's like the sort of being able to hold the tension of both of those realities being very valid, because I think we have to be able to say to any adoptee, lack of genetic mirroring is hard and very complicated. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to learn how to walk in step with people when I have something in common, but not say me too, because it's Mm -hmm. very different for you as a black woman in a white family as opposed to me as a white woman in a white family. It's just different, but it's more than different. Yeah, and I think it that more than different is sort of highlighted in the moments of um, tension in the race relation moments. And the really the only way I can bring language to that is to like kind of tell the story of what it is like to see, you know, r- really real racial injustice taking place and watch, you know, the notification come across your phone and you have this split second where you're like, is this about, is this about race? Like, is this about my ethnicity. And then you have this moment where you're like, yes. And it's this like twofold trauma of like the oppressor looks like the people who have loved and cared for you for your life, who you live in a family and community with. And then like the person being victimized looks like you. And it's like this very strange grief that's really hard to name. But that moment of hesitation is only something I find transracial adoptees have that that is not something that I have really seen in the black community or in the Asian community when they're in those moments of racial tension, because they know they've witnessed it throughout their family. They've seen the moments 
in their parents. They've seen the experience and heard the stories from their grandparents. And when you're a transracial adoptee, you learn that on your own and you have to do that reclamation journey on your own really to reclaim your identity. And it is this complicated grief and pain you have to carry into the moment where you then have to reckon with the reality that that's lonely. And mm-hmm. and there's the whole ignorance mm-hmm. of how lucky you are. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That makes me a little bit crazy. Mm-hmm. Me too. Do you remember hearing Gideon talk about not feeling belonging in the United States? And then when he got to visit his parents, where they were from, they went back to, I think it might've been Hong Kong or China. And he thought, he's like, I can't wait to go there. I'm going to belong there. And then Mm. he didn't belong there either as part of this Western culture. Yeah. And, you know, when you talked about the mirroring, while I'm sitting here listening to y'all, you know, I'm thinking about him saying that. I'm thinking about the fact that my story is nothing like the two of y'all's. I do have like half of a story of, a biological parent that didn't want really to have anything to do with us, but it's not the same. And my reaction is way different Uh, or my feelings, I guess are way different. Mm -hmm. And I've got a line here from the family systems workshop Mm -hmm. of we're all struggling with the idea that our story isn't as bad as somebody else's story. So we shouldn't tell it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so those are just some of the things that are bounce around in this corner of the room. Yeah. Yeah. And I, Mm. I think, I've been saying for a very long time that I believe everybody wants two things. I think everybody wants their life to have meaning. And I think everybody wants to belong. Mm -hmm. And there is no reason, based on what I know about you, for you to have a minute of I'm not sure my life has meaning. And I think my life has meaning. Mm -hmm. But that belonging thing just doesn't, I can't sit here as a 70-year-old woman and say to you, it gets better because I, d- I haven't found it to be better. I feel like I don't belong in a family where they did everything they could to help me belong. Mm. And I think that's so, I think that's just such a real part of what we carry from adoption is there's just that, that core wound of rejection. And it's not like you haven't done any work, (laughs) you know, like, or I haven't done any work on it. I think it's this reality that you, it's that lie, right? It's the first thing that you learned that you weren't wanted. And so I think that you carry that rejection with you in different forms throughout your life. And, and it's just that wound that's kind of always with you. And I think it can heal in, in certain places, but I think it, it just stays. I think it always has a spot that isn't healed mm-hmm. and then something touches it and you know it. Mm-hmm. And I think those things come from who knows where. And I feel very blessed mm-hmm. to have been adopted by the people who adopted me. I'm not, two things can be true. And I feel very blessed and I am adopted. How big of a player is Enneagram personality in this? What are you talking about? Because, you know, you just said the first thing that you learn is that you're not wanted. And I've heard you talk about that, you know, that I will forever be adopted mm-hmm. and, 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 and I know you can, I can't put myself in mm-hmm. somebody's the shoes, 
But as, as soon as you said that, I was like, I feel like the first thing I would have learned was I was wanted by, by these people. Mm-hmm. Like that would have been, and maybe that's the seven reframe. I, I don't know. So that, that's my question is, do you think everyone Enneagram wise, I understand I'm not pushing back against what sure. you're saying whatsoever. Here's I'm just curious if the experience is, di- you know, y'all are one and a two. I think there's a lot of similarities that y'all carry just in that. Yeah, yeah, there are. We're, we're um, like each other, and so, <laughs> I like it. That's so true. that's that's my question. I'm well, curious about that too. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's my answer. I'll see what you think. I think there's a big difference, Joel, and not being wanted by your mother, and not being wanted by your father. And I may get in trouble for that, and we may get a lot of feedback, but. When you carry a child in your body for nine months and then don't want that child or don't think you can keep that child or give that child away for whatever good, wonderful reason or bad reason, I think that's a different relationship early in life than a relationship with your father. So I think that's the first thing I would say. What do you think? I think that's true. And I think we know that even from like knowing about the trauma, that trauma can be experienced in the womb. And this is something I learned a lot, learn, grow, like doing time and living in the East is how much they believe really strongly in being really careful about telling pregnant women even traumatic things. And then how Western science really backs that up and the reality that there's a lot of trauma just through the emotions a woman's experiencing as she's pregnant. And so if you have already lived in a womb where you're kind of consciously being rejected, um, even as you're growing there, I really believe there's a lot to be said about that experience continually. So I, I agree with that. I'm convinced that adoption Hmm. plays right into what Rizzo and Hudson describe as the lost childhood messages. Mm. And so uh, mine is you are wanted and yours is you are good. Mm. And I bet if we talked that through as a one and a two, we would find that you tried to manage maintaining your worthiness in being adopted by being good. And I was always trying to do whatever would make me feel like I was wanted. Mm. So um, I'll try to run through the numbers. Do you want me to do that? Are you, is that a... Whatever, whatever you think. Yeah. Yeah. So for threes, it says your love for who you are. I add not for what you do. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that threes who are adopted are doing, doing, doing in order to be loved. And probably that's connected to what their parents would have seen as successful. Mm. So like my mom really somehow had it in her head when I was a little bitty girl that I was going to be Miss America someday. And I turned out to be an athlete and not into girly stuff and, you know, all that. So, um, yeah, she cried one year during Miss America And I asked her why she was crying, and she lied and said, because that girl's so beautiful. But I think it's because she realized it was never going to be me. (laughs) Fours, adoptees, I think, would really struggle because what they want is to be known. They want to be seen and known and understood. 
So if you're a four and you want to be seen and known and understood and you start off with not being seen and known by your primitive right. triangle family, how, how? You overdo everything. Fours have a tendency to overexpress themselves, to over-identify, to over-explain. And you just ratchet that up another level. Fours I have a trap there, though, because they're caught uh, in having an appreciation for melancholy. And so they can just kind of be melancholy all the time. And people don't know about melancholy. They think it's sadness. They ask what it is. And then force can always land on adoption. One thing you have to be careful of, I think, mm. if you're adopted, is that when people ask you a question about yourself or why you're doing something or why you feel some way, if I don't have the answer, then I immediately, at least inside of me, think it must be because I'm adopted. Mm. Do you do that? Yes, but it, it, it's critiquing me. Sure. So I haven't done, so for me, it's like, I haven't done enough work. I need yeah. to do more work on my adoption. I'm not, I'm not doing this right. Mm -hmm. So yes, but it just comes up. It sounds different in my head. Yeah. I bet it does. I think I relate to that line with one a lot when mm -hmm. I'm that, that that's my go-to at times where it's like, man, you are, you need, you need to do some work <laughs> like mm -hmm. that not about adoption, but just that line of thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I can just tell you from the jump, you know, when I asked that about four, being adopted puts you behind the eight ball immediately on any of these. I mean, grab one, right? Like it absolutely it's like does. They, they hand it to you at the, at the hospital. Here you go. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's Good a, luck. it yeah. is a big thing. And while they, well, let's run through the numbers and do that. And then remind me, I want to come back to Joel that while they hand you that, that we're talking about, they hand you this lost message, essentially. Mm -hmm. They also, in the other hand, tell you how lucky you are. Make that make sense. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it's happened. really hard. You are so lucky. Okay, fives. Uh, your needs are not a problem. And, gosh, it sure seems like they are if you're adopted. Seems like you're a problem and your needs are a problem and so you're available. Mm -hmm. it, it always goes to the and so you're available in my head. Sixes, you are safe. Mm -hmm. I don't know about that. I, I don't know about that. I'm sitting here looking at you and your hair is beautiful. And you have a lot of it, and it's black, and it's all up on top of your head. And I'm thinking, n nobody you looked at looked like you. Mm -hmm. Nobody. It's not just skin color. It has to do with, I don't know how to do your hair. Mm -hmm. Right? I don't know how to handle this. I don't know. So one of our issues that we have to work toward is getting beyond in terms of transracial adoption that you have a home and that you're safe and all of that, if you are. 
because there are so many things that don't get addressed. So I'm off, I'm off topic again, but I'll be back. I'll finish the numbers. Then I want to say one more thing. Then, Abigail, you can just talk for 30 minutes to make up for everything I've said. Um, seven, sixes, did I do sixes, want to be safe? Yep. I did. Mm-hmm. Sevens um, are concerned that their needs are not going to be met. And that's a concern, right? It's like, here you go. Um, eights, you will not be betrayed. Where do you put that in adoption? Mm-hmm. And nines is your presence matters. And the answer would have to be to whom? We talked about today earlier, uh, Abigail, that I'm doing with my children. The prayer beads are on the fruits of the spirit. Mm. I think a very cool, and tell me if this is just sounds stupid. Okay. But if you have an adopted child, having something like those nine beads mm-hmm. and getting to sit down with your kid and, and tell them, listen, hands on their face, you know, you are good. You are wanted. That's it. You are loved for yourself. Mm-hmm. You are seen for who you are. Your needs are not a problem. You are safe. You will be taken care of. You will not be betrayed. Your presence matters. Like, And again, it's one of those things we're going to mess up as parents. They're still going to miss one of those. But just that effort. I, That's right. You know, when I teach parenting, they all want me to help them uh, figure out. When they don't know what they're getting, they want me to help them figure out what number their kids are, which, of course, I won't do. But they say, well, then what can I do? And I say, you can give them all nine lost messages every single day. Yeah, because that's love. Sure, sure it is. Mm-hmm. It's love in action because I think that's part of the that both and that you hold with adoption, right, of but you're loved and and it's sort of this passive love. It's not sacrificial. And I think that real love is always sacrificial at some level and really taking that time to reinforce the truth that you are loved for all of you and presenting children with that continually would do wonders in setting them on a journey to believe it. Do you think that we, that parents, that the automatic habitual patterned way of parenting without bringing up the work is to overfocus on the one that we, we didn't receive. Yes. So without, if I child number one comes out, Gracie's here and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, you're going to be taken care of me as a seven. How can I show you that you're going to be taken care of by taking care of her? And you did right. But, but, and that's what, Mm. so that is true that, so did you as a two, y'all are wanted my children tell me did you ever for one second not feel it (laughs) so that's that's it exactly and i think my parents were a five and a one what well let me just finish this sentence (laughs) and my mother saw to it that i knew that my needs were not a problem she met them before i asked and my dad used to always tell me how good I was because that's what he wanted to hear as a one. Mm. So what number do you, do you know what number your parents are? I have a guess. Okay. I don't know. Um, my mom is a five also. Mm-hmm. And I think that my dad is a seven or a two. I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. Back to your whole journey. This is going to be a 
Enneagram Journey podcast. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> I and like be, it too. And just before we go, I'm so sorry because my mind is just running wild now. I think the other ones that I, my next two that I fall back on are my two lines as a parent. That I, after me focusing on that you'll be taken care of, Yep. you are good, Yep. and your needs are not a problem. That's right. Like mm-hmm. that is what I... And I lack, without doing work, I lack on bringing all the others to the table. But those three, I hammer home. And That's now, good. And, That's, and now I have work to do. I got more work to do. I got to work on this. We got so. work. We all, we all do. We got work. <laughs> all right. I'll be quiet. Share. I, I'm, it's like, uh, all right. You were not adopted immediately at birth. Start there and share how the process and where you were living at yeah. the time. So yeah, I was brought at birth. I was, so it's, it's a little complicated because the part of East Africa that I was in, it's illegal to abandon babies. So you don't, it gets complicated. It's just a little bit complicated. And so from birth until four months, I was in an orphanage in East Africa and then did what we would, we would call in America foster to adopt, but it wasn't really called that. Um, at that time in East Africa. And so uh, went then to be with my family that I'm with now from four months to two years while the adoption was finalized. And during that time, it really had my my sister, my older sister, she's 12 years older than me, was really praying and wanted a little sister and was not going to be quiet about it ever. And so, um, and my mom was excited about that and really wanted to have another baby, but that wasn't going to be a possibility for her without, you know, adoption was kind of the only option that was on the table. And my dad was like, I am not sure about this. You know, we have a 12 year old. <laughs> and so really through, um, a, a church service and, and just like, honestly, what I believe to be like the spirit of the living God, just stirring it up in them, they ended up going to this orphanage and, um, picking out me. And so that was the journey from the four months to the two years time of the adoption being finalized, all of us living in East Africa together. And then we went from East Africa to the Chicago area, lived there um, until I was six. And at six, we moved back to East Africa with me and my sister um, and her best friend and lived in East Africa for a year. And that was my first experience in Africa. It was my first time being able to see the red clay dirt mm-hmm. and live in a culture where actually I looked like the majority of people around me. Obviously still had a very different cultural experience um, because if you are living in Africa with like the financial and socioeconomic status of being from the West, you have, you're very wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's an interesting dynamic and it's an interesting dynamic for people to see who your parents are and to kind of learn the cultural cues and see the difference. But I loved that time in East Africa. I really loved it. Um, it definitely, uh, it's it's weird to put into words, but it, it brought a sense of wholeness to me, I think, um, at six and seven that I didn't really have the language for, but was really experiencing in, in my body and just gave me a love for Africa because I had heard about Africa my whole life from all my siblings who had grown up um, living in Central and East Africa. And so I knew the stories, but I had never gotten to have those experiences myself. So getting to have those was really cool. And then we went back to the, yeah, the Chicago area. So I'm jumping back and forth, but we went back to the Chicago area. My sister graduated um, and got married and me and my parents moved back to East Africa and we were there from seven to 15. 
And so we were in East Africa for that time. I was going to international school. It was a really cool experience because I say the most common thing about everyone that was there in terms of my peers was really our difference. You know, I had 12 different nationalities in my class. And so really got to experience the beauty of culture, cultural differences and appreciation and see a lot of different humanitarian and missional work that was happening. And really, I think that's where activism kind of got into my blood. Boy, it got way in. <laughs> yeah, like really deep. And so um, just formulated my view of the world and exposed me to things like extreme poverty and made me wrestle with really hard questions at really a young age um, where I started to really think about what does it mean to live a life where you're producing goodness and love and life and creating opportunities for people um, while also holding this tension of knowing that um, these places and these experiences that I was seeing could have been my life. And so having what I later, I think I called for a long time because I heard this thing about when someone wins the lottery, they have winner's guilt. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I would call it in my head. Like it's winner's guilt. You have this mm-hmm. guilt that you were the one baby out of all these babies chosen and you would get this life where you have so many opportunities mm-hmm. and all these kids don't. And so that was also a really interesting thing to hold in tension and not something that was talked about, right? In the 90s, we weren't having these conversations about how do you talk to your kid about that experience? Do you think in the 90s, good people who were really trying believed that they didn't see color and that that was a good thing? Yeah. I I thought it was a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I... I thought it was true of me and I thought it was a good thing and it seems like a 90s thing and now I know it's not a good thing Mm. and it's not okay and I'm still the same person so sometimes it's confusing in this chair too you know yeah well and and bacon's good for you now you know there's a there's an ever-evolving someone put it up recently and it's been said a lot lately, especially around everything around COVID-19 and masks. And now we should wear a mask, you know, but it's the ability to change your, your stance on something when new information is presented. Right. That's wisdom. And people mm-hmm. don't kind of don't do that. And I think, I think in general, more people don't do that than do do that. I've, I've loved getting all this new information that I didn't know over the past year about so many things. Me too. Mm-hmm. And, and you know how I, you may not have heard me say this, but I have no patience for old people like Joe and me who say, I'm, I'm just too old to learn all this. Mm-hmm. It is a little bit overwhelming though, to feel like you kind of sort of get it. And what I'm excited about, honestly, is because I get adoption I feel like a, I have a way for us to connect that paves the way for us to connect as I struggle to learn the other things that I want to learn from you about sex trafficking and about being a young black woman in 2021 and about everything that's happening around you and what that means. What 
gift has come with being the baby chosen. You know that you don't know this, and you won't know this singing group, and y'all can both make fun of me, but I'll live through it. Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the reason I thought of the Vietnam War in the 60s is because they sang a lot of anti-war music in the 60s, folk music that became really important to me Mm. as I was trying to fight the good fight for peace and not killing people and all that. Mm. Uh, Anti-war I was uh, through and through. And there's a line from the song that is this, there but for good fortune go you or go I. Mm. And I sometimes think that I think of that line too much because when I see extreme poverty, when I see talent that didn't ever have a chance to be recognized or uh, when I encounter really smart kids who aren't going to have to, they're going to have to struggle to get a secondary education. I think there but for fortune go I. That could have been me. Mm-hmm. So my story is that my dad was a doc, and he and my mom had biological sons who were 18 and 15, and he delivered me one night and literally went home the next day and said to her, I think we need to adopt this baby, and I wasn't a planned adoption. Mm-hmm. And so I've often said kind of tongue-in-cheek when I'm teaching, I must have been quite something as a newborn. You must feel that way. I was picked, so I must have been quite something. Do you? Hmm. Do you just feel like the lucky one? Do you feel like did your parents who adopted you know anything about your parents? Yeah, so not... They didn't really have a knowledge of, there's not a lot of knowledge of my biological family that we have. Um, and I think that I have felt, hmm, that's really interesting. I think I, I don't know if I, I think it feels for me more like the lucky one. Um, and I think it's because of, it's never been put necessarily in this we chose you in the language from my family. It's never been put in the language where it's like, we chose you because you were so special and all these things. It's been more put in the language of like, we chose you, but we could have chose this kid or we could have chose this kid. So I don't think there was necessarily a uniqueness for me that was tied to you specifically. Interesting. Because I don't think I would have been chosen if I'd been a boy. Mm. Maybe I would have. I don't know. You know, those are questions... It's too late for me to ask. You ask mm-hmm. them while you can. Yeah. Because there's a point where you can't go back to that. So do you know any of your biological history? I do know a little bit about it. I know I know my birth mom's name and I know like little bits and pieces, but it's complicated because, you know, when you are also during the time that I was adopted, the the US embassy was blown up in East Africa, one of them. And so like all of the original documents are not something that we have anymore. And so I know that's a, that's a common experience with adoptees where you don't actually have any real, you know, paperwork tying you. So I think that that has always this sort of thing in the back of a lot of adoptees minds in my mind of, do you go on the journey? Do you not go on the journey? Do you kind of 
pursue it? Do you not pursue it? And I have had a lot of adoptees who have really lived their life and they just always say like, if you go on the journey, it never really ends. So just prepare yourself that you can't unsee or unlearn what you learn from that point forward. And, um, I think in truth that always has made me nervous that I think like you don't know what you're going to uncover when you go and dive into your story. And that is oftentimes really scary and something you kind of have to hold in tension. I have two questions. You are further along on that journey, Suzanne. So can you talk to what she just said? And is there any realistic way to manage expectations when start at or starting that journey. Like we all know the definition of expectations being resentment waiting to happen. So how, do, how do you start that journey without expectations? Because my dad delivered me, I had my birth mother's name and my parents, uh, put that information in a lockbox at the bank and gave me a key and said, anytime you want to go get that information, we'll go with you or you can go by yourself. You can tell us you're going or you can go and never tell us this. This is it right here. Here's the key. And I love my parents very much and they love me very well. And I thought then that it would hurt their feelings if I looked. I think I was wrong now, mm-hmm. but that's what I thought then. Even though they said, no, no, here's the key. You go do whatever works for you. And um, I coached college basketball for a time, and my uh, SMU here in Dallas was playing Texas Tech, and I'm from a town 58 miles from Lubbock. My parents were in Europe, so I thought, this is it. I'll go to Lubbock with the team, but I'll send them back home and I'll go check the bank. And I did, and they had remodeled the bank. So my key didn't fit. So then I decided not to go, and I never went until after my mom died. She lived to be 92, and when my brothers went to open the lockbox after she died to get the will and all of that, Uh, my adoption papers were in a sealed envelope right on top. And I didn't open them for two years. And then I did, and to make a long story short, I found my birth mother, and I called her, and she was very angry and wanted nothing to do with me and told me to never, ever try to call her again. Mm -hmm. Uh, So sometimes the journey ends. (laughs) When you go on it, it does end because the other person doesn't want to be part of that. Do you think, though, that, though, my first thoughts when Abigail shared that was that you're still on the journey. You deal with that journey every time you go see Dr. Hughes and every time. Dr. Mm-hmm. Hughes is my therapist. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the whole world knows that. <laughs> and he's really good if you ever need one. So do you think, I mean, that that door may be has closed or something or, and the journey didn't go where you thought it would go, but it's gone a different direction. Yeah. Here's the deal, Abigail. I, I don't know if this is true for all adoptees, but I suspect it is. It doesn't matter. And, and, and I'm 
done a lot of work and I'm fairly healthy. It doesn't matter what I take to therapy. That's really hard for me. It always ends in adoption. Mm. Every time. All right. So what's the answer to the second part of my question about expectations? I expected that she was dying to meet me. That she thought Mm. about me and that she would be so glad to know that I'm doing well and that I have kids and grandkids and that I'm grateful for the family I lived with. I thought she will be thrilled. So on your side, do you have thoughts about all that? Have you thought, I'm going to go, I'm not going to go? I might, I might not. Hmm. I think if I daydream about it for long enough, I sort of envision it being something I do once my parents pass, which is maybe a interesting statement about just how we feel about that collision and how uncomfortable that is for us of trying to understand what that means. I think what I know of my biological family or I don't want to say family. I think I'll, I'll just say mother in this situation is I feel like pursuing that the, the fear is sort of around what does the dynamic of that relationship look like? Like, what does that, how do you, I, you know, and I hear a lot from other adoptees about that collision. And then I think it's also, it's, it's so, it's such a multi-layered intersection, right. Of not just, her, you know, the mother-daughter relationship that's even calling it that is a strange thing for me to even name that. But then the layers of socioeconomic privilege that would be involved and then the layers of even just opportunities and what does that look like? And I think being in that dynamic is something I find like almost frightening. I, I, I would feel like feels like the right word that that really is probably what holds me back is just that I, I don't know how that dynamic would look. And I don't, it would be, it would feel like a very lonely journey to go on. Mm -hmm. It would. And so I think that's what I've always kind of just been like maybe one day, but it would probably be a long time down the line. What I have discovered and, and I think Dr. Hughes would say he has discovered with me, he doesn't specialize in working with older adults who were adopted. Um, but I think what we both discovered is that adoption is a hole that you don't fill. So put energy into living with that hole that you don't fill. And, and nothing fills it. And it's lovely to have parents who took good care of you and you're a beautiful, smart young woman. They obviously took very good care of you. And you're adopted. Yeah. And I think it's, I think that's almost the the place of contentment you have to come to. And it's good for me to learn that from you because I think there's like this, when I'm thinking about it at 26, I'm like, well, maybe when I get married or maybe when I have my own family or maybe one day when I'm looking at my kids playing and you have all these thoughts of like, maybe this, then this, then this. And it's like good for you to tell me, no, it's not. It's not because I think that that helps to preserve me from that resentment, right? Of those expectations that Joel was saying, like 
of, of putting your expectations in a place that then the people in your life can't fulfill. And then you're already in a place of disconnection and you don't want that. Yeah. When I had my oldest daughter, my first baby, I thought how I, I couldn't in a million years let go of her. Mm. But I saw myself in my context, not the context of the women who chose to let go of you and of me. And I, um, I read a great book. I, I don't, I, I, I would love to know how you think about it if you read it. It is primarily about women who gave up babies for adoption in the 50s and 60s. Mm. And it's, the title is The Women Who Went Away. Oh, I've heard of that a lot from um, Ashley Mitchell, who's a common birth mother voice in this space and talking about her experience, but I've never read it. Well, it's really good okay. in many ways. And the way that it's the best is that I had never viewed life from the other side, just mm-hmm. from my side. And women in the 1950s and 60s were encouraged to give babies away and were mm-hmm. taught that that would be the best thing. Mm-hmm. The best thing is for you to give this baby up for adoption. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of women... As it turns out, my birth mother was not one of them. But I think a lot of women agonized over giving up babies for adoption. And to see it from another perspective is has value even if it doesn't fit. It had value for me, even though it didn't fit. Yeah. I think that's, that's a beautiful growth piece of when you're walking on your adoption journey is to start to look at the whole triad that's involved. You know, the adoptive parent the birth mom and the adoptee and really I think leaning into that birth mom experience I know that's been a huge part of my healing is just trying to listen to the experiences that they're having the emotional experience they were having the physical circumstances and in my work which is anti-sex trafficking work I see that all the time right that there are so many intersections of vulnerabilities that people are come into a moment where it really those those vulnerabilities end up stripping them of choices. And I think applying that for me to the birth mother lens has really helped me have a lot of compassion um, for the amount of, of pain that this reality does cause me. And so it's it's that tension again of, right, that joy of I am so incredibly grateful for my family mm-hmm. and how they've loved me and taken care of me and the the opportunities that my life has given me are like so just <laughs> the complete opposite of what my life would have been had I grown up. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I was born in the second largest slum in the world. So to give context to the reality of like how far away, you know, some of my life is because of this adoption, I think you hold those things in tension, that joy and that pain. For everyone real fast who was jumping on Amazon as quick as they could, small, small thing, the girls who went away. Just the title of the book. Yeah. What did I say? Women. Again, um, not not a huge deal, but you believe me, I deal with the customer service stuff here. The girls who went away. He's helping the one who I'm typing in and I'm like, no, Suzanne, Suzanne said the said girls. The so yeah. there's another yeah. version and I'm not yeah. finding it. What's wrong so with me? I'm typing be, this the in. The sequel is the women who went away and Suzanne's talking about the not sequel. Not the right yeah. one. <laughs> And then I'm sending email to info at, you know, whatever, like, (laughs) like, are you, I just want to double check. 
Listen, I don't want the one of these bootleg the girl who went away copies. I want the real, the real so, thing. The real thing oh, is the good. girls who went away. Good. Thank you very much. I would think there would be added tension in being adopted out of the second largest slum in the world. I, and I think there's context for everybody's adoption. Mm. Whether you are one of many or you're this unique one, there is this adoption thing that doesn't pay attention to that mm. inside of us, I think. is. Do you think that? Mm. It's like I get it that I might not have survived living there. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was born. And I'm still different from these other people. Yeah. And that doesn't get fixed by the grace and the mercy and the blessing of being adopted out of it. Is that true? It's so true. And I think that's the hardest thing for adoptive parents to grapple with and do well. Because I think that there is a, a feeling of if you take ownership that you cannot fix that for your child, you then have to figure out what it means to sit with your child in pain. And from what I know of the experience of being a parent, you just really want to make your child not in pain. Right. That's right. And so I think that's that tension of, and I see this in my parents and I see how they respond to it in different ways sure. of, of really not wanting to sit with that pain, like really having trouble just being present with it. Mm -hmm. And and then the other one just really wanting to like fix it, make it better, do something different. And so I think there is this, I mean, it's, it's really your, your, your orientation to that emotion in your child, which you can speak to how different numbers feel about that. But really, I think that's huge. And I think it's one of the, the places that when I have so many well-meaning adoptive parents who come into my DMs and they're like, we just, we want to do it right. Mm-hmm. And I always think like, you can't. Yeah, there's there's actually no way to do it right. You can just go on the journey and and live the sacrificial love and hopefully take ownership of when you do it wrong. And that's really the only way um, that you can. You can't make up for anything. Mm -hmm. You have to be in the present. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's so true. Okay, how. Did you get involved in being um, an advocate around issues having to do with sex trafficking? Yeah. So I, I, since I grew up in East Africa, I learned and saw at an early age the experience of women who were being prostituted in the slums. And I grew up around little girls who would often say, you know, I, when I grow up, I want to be a prostitute. And they didn't really know what that meant, but it was that they knew that that was a path out of, right, this economic poverty mm-hmm. that we've talked about. And so as I grew up and I saw the realities of what prostitution looked like globally and I watched different documentaries, um, it really hit me that, oh, like that was a, a product of such a lack of choices. And it really stirred it stirred in me, right? This story that was playing out in places in the world where women were so vulnerable. 
And um, I think also because I could put myself in those shoes, um, that it wasn't so far removed from my story, much like those pick your own ending tales. I think a lot of times adoptees feel like their life is like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I could sort of pick a different tale, pick a different story for my own life. And so I saw the need for creating opportunities for women. And I saw how when there isn't that, uh, that ultimately um, traffickers and people seeking to exploit um, go after people who are in positions of vulnerability. And so that was kind of what brought me into it was, was the knowledge that I had from my own experience, but then that in colliding with the realities of seeing documentaries about, you know, the global global sex trafficking and reading books and hearing stories of survivors who had lived through it. I am very excited about what we're going to be able to talk about mm-hmm. on the podcast in the future in relationship to sex trafficking and I'm not ready and I'm not ready because I don't know how to honor your time in that conversation with smart and appropriate questions and with a background that puts me in a position to be in an honest conversation with you so we chose to do this podcast first I thought about my not being ready and my wanting some time and some direction from you as to how I could prepare. And it occurred to me that I don't think listeners will be ready either Mm. in the sense that if we do what we are hoping to do well and maybe can build on that, then we in Life in the Trinity Ministries have an opportunity to set the table for you to talk to our audience who we hope will talk to other people who will talk to other people about your wisdom and what you know. And so I would like it if you could give us a way for me and for Joel and a list that we can share with our listeners of what documentaries we might choose from or watch and what books we might want to look at. Yeah. Because it's easy for me to say, see a sign that says stop sex trafficking. The Vietnamese man who's my friend who does my nails has that sign hanging on the wall. And I've been with him every two weeks for I, I don't know how long, maybe 15, 20 years. And I've seen that sign time and again. And I've never started a conversation about it, and I talk about everything. You know that. And I think it's because I know that I don't know what to say. Yeah, we, when we engage a topic like anti-sex trafficking work, I think the most important thing, actually I want to change that and say anti-human trafficking because I do want to include everything in that and just say the most important thing we can do is be present to people's stories You know, I think we're really prone to this idea of I want to know the signs, I want to know the numbers. But what I've discovered in my work is that the most transformative thing is sitting with with people's stories, which your community already does so well. 
And when we lean in, we start to see um, the framework of what were the vulnerabilities for those people in those moments. And when we start to see that in different memoirs we read, which I'll put in this list of survivors, and when we start to see the way that advocates have come into that story and, um, and really given opportunities, I think that's how we build safety in our families and in our communities and in our cities because ultimately people intersecting with people like you intersecting with your nail tech is how we're going to stop trafficking. Like that's how we are going to do it. It's going to be the person to the person is really what I believe in and having those moments of real connections and conversations and being willing to just ask the questions and, and to lean in and to see someone. And I think that's actually particularly hard in the world we're living in right now where we're all sort of really conscious of, you know, the, the masks and all of these things. And we're sort of going through our own layers of trauma. And so I think that the great challenge that I would give is just lean into the stories of the women who have experienced this and, and you're going to start to see a pattern and that's going to allow you to see the pattern playing out in your neighborhood or in your family or, um, and then we're going to give you the tools to be able to, to intervene. One of the things that I'm most interested in is I've been in church all my life and Joe and I are in ministry in a church now, a large church. Joe's a pastor there and I'm Joe's wife. And I don't hear about it. Hmm. Do you remember when we, the first time I, and I think it was the first time you, first time LTM, I think when we traveled to Portland. Yes. And that at the Portland airport, Mm -hmm. that was every wall, every sign, everything on the highway, leaving and going away into the airport was about sex trafficking. And that was eye opening. I didn't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what port I thought. Do you remember after that, that we looked it up and we found out that Portland was like some number, number eight on the list or something like that. Right. And we didn't know there was a list. And we were fascinated by that. And after that was the first time I heard anything reported on the news, and it had to do with the Super Bowl, I think, Mm -hmm. and how many women were being brought in. So what happens with... um What happens when there's ever there's a large concentration of people? So that's where we see like, you know, big cities. So Portland, Dallas, Houston, the Super Bowl, you know, the World Cup, wherever there's going to be a large gathering of men. But that's not just like those big events. It's also like like conferences, like Christian conference. Like it's just whenever there's a large gathering, we see the increase in the numbers of then women being bought and sold and arrests being made. Um. Uh, because there's that uptick of there's more there's more people present. So we in the in the anti-trafficking world always kind of caution people between just so we know there aren't any real known hubs for sex trafficking because if there's a big city with a lot of people or there's a big event happening, that's a hub. And so we always want to challenge that sort of narrative. We just don't not, I'm not trying to like pick on you. I just want to, I'm just going to challenge the narrative of like, there's some, there's a huge, it's like, actually we're just, what, what's really happening is more arrests are being made because more people are coming to town, which means more people are buying sex in your neighborhood. And that means that there's an increase in arrests, but that doesn't always, 
that doesn't necessarily mean we don't have the data to prove. I'll say it that way. We have the data to prove that necessarily means that there are um, more people being sold than normal. Does that make sense? Absolutely okay. does. And it just highlights we, I have so much to learn. And I'm so glad that you are so articulate and so gracious because that makes it possible for us at the LTM community to learn from you. Is it more prevalent than we think? Absolutely. I would say there's not a, there's not one type of, of person who buys sex, right? Like there's not like this. And this is something I learned through seeing it right way before I ever had the educational knowledge or had sat with survivor leaders. I, I learned this from walking the streets of some of the largest red light districts in the world in Southeast Asia and seeing like, okay, well, there's not like one type of man or person that's here to buy sex. You know, it's everyone from the pastor to the frat boy to the person to the monk, like there's literally everyone's here. And so I think that that's something we have to, we have to debunk is that everyone wants to think like, well, no one in my neighborhood or no one in my church or no one in my family would buy sex. But that's just not the reality because when we have been so desensitized through the porn culture, which is really just the the lie that right women are sexual objects and men are sexual predators, and both of those things sell men and women short of who they truly are, and and when we buy that lie and we you know through pornography desensitize ourselves to the value of women and and get desensitized to like all this you know fetishization and all these things it all plays together and it makes it um just the inevitable end of that being you know buying sex and i think that's so hard you know not all people who watch pornography end up buying sex but definitely all people who end up buying sex watch pornography and so we see this sort of sorry i'm going too deep into your question but really what i'm trying to say is that absolutely, yes, they are that sort of feeling of this pornography thing feels so big. And how are we dealing with numbers like 70% of the people we're walking around with are watching pornography? That's a huge amount of people. Um, and then also dealing with the reality of like that all of those people have a significant potential then to also be buying human beings. Um, and I think if we start to think about how common that could be in our spaces, that's when we really, um, I think we'll see the importance of starting to advocate and talk about it because it's so prevalent and so important for us to protect the people who are vulnerable um, around us. But yeah, I have one more question. Yeah. We, am I correct that we're not just talking about men buying women for sex? Are we also talking about women buying men? Are we talking about same gender? That's a good question. Um, so, so why we say typically men buying women is because that is women don't even show up on the scale. So there's 0.3% of buyers. Okay. So we're not trying to pick on men, but what we try not to do is become dismissive, right? So when we say like, men and women or whatever, we're sort of like, it becomes dismissive of the reality that really there is a power dynamic in men buying women for right. sex as right. the majority. But I do not want to discount the reality of what is what happens in the transgendered community right. or what happens in 
of people of all different orientations that that is very real, but the still the majority of the purchasers we see globally are men. And that's kind of what I've learned from not just the data and really studying that and, and witnessing it with my eyes, but also carrying this experience of the survivor leaders and the people with the lived experience around me. It's like, it's overwhelmingly men. So thank you. Thank you. I'm honored to have had your time and your wisdom and your presence Mm. and looking forward to what will be. Thank you. It's been such an honor and so much fun to learn from you today.